That article just highlight, highlighted the implications that Brazilian beef and pork will have here on the American cattle producer. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here from the Ag News Daily Podcast, and I'm joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, I tell you what, downtown Chicago, it's about 60 degrees and sunny with a nice little breeze. Perfect planting conditions if mm-hmm. you uh, need to plant along the lakeshore here. Yes, absolutely. It is uh, a little cloudy, but it was sunny this morning. We got some rain overnight, but we are done with planting, so we're excited about that, and I think a lot of folks are moving right along. Yeah, and that is one of the things Ted Seifert talked about on Monday. If you missed our Market Monday uh, podcast, go back to our website at Ag News Daily and click on it. There you can hear Ted's thoughts on what this accelerated planting pace might mean for corn acres. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, Delaney. Yeah, he has a maybe a different take than what I've heard from some other folks right now. So do go back and check that out. But we've got lots of other things going on in the world of news. I want to follow up here. Really, the, the main headline that's driving the news today, at least from what I'm reading, is really what's going on within the protein industry, which is very fitting because we're going to be chatting with a rancher from Nebraska later on in the episode talking about some of the impact of COVID-19, the Holcomb, Kansas fire, and some other factors impacting specifically the beef industry. But I'm going to start off with this piece of news that is impacting the pork industry. Bloomberg reported that U.S. farmers may cull up to 7 million hogs in this quarter alone. CoBank has put out a survey. They've interviewed farmers. They've been talking to folks across the industry and said that that's what they're thinking is 7 million hogs could be cold worth about $700 million compared to historical average prices. So going to see some pretty huge losses across the swine industry. We also, or they also put out as part of that report that grocery stores could shrink by almost 30%. And that's all meat supplies, not just pork. And when you say grocery stores could shrink, Delaney, do you mean their sales, like There's, meat sales at the grocery store? Well, that's a good question. It's specifically saying meat supplies could shrink. Oh, gotcha. Well, you know, I mean, we're already seeing that happen. As I talked right. about yesterday, 20% of Wendy's can't serve hamburgers because mm-hmm. they just don't have the supply in place. Um, yeah. I did see, to kind of piggyback on your story about the hog culling, uh, Minnesota reported that uh, farmers are culling, you know, depopulating 10,000 hogs per day. So, I mean, they're certainly on track to get us to that 7 million number, which yeah. is uh, devastating. Yeah, and we're going to, this is really the focus of the rest of our interviews and conversations for this week. We're talking to Mackenzie Johnston, a rancher today. We're talking pork Thursday and Friday this week. So these are topics we're continuing to cover here on the podcast. But when you turn to the packing side of things, I believe you initially reported on this, Mike, and that is a worker that tried to sue a Smithfield facility in Milan, Missouri. And we saw today that a federal judge has dismissed that lawsuit because the judge said that the company, Smithfield, took significant steps to reduce the risk of a COVID-19 outbreak at that plant and therefore dismissed this lawsuit. So it will be interesting to see if this kind of sets a precedent for other people who think, hey, maybe I should sue my packing facility I work for. Well, I think, and this is something that uh, Legal Eagles, if you are listening and you've done some research on the Defense Production Act that uh, President Trump used to, you know, kind of accelerate the reopening of packing plants, 
my understanding is one of the aspects of that is it uh, basically indemnifies packing plants from lawsuits. It, it reduces their liability, I guess mm. I should say. Okay. So that employees have less opportunity to sue because you know they've gone through the CDC and the OSHA requirements and all that stuff. So I, I think that we might just be one and done on lawsuits in the packing industry. However, right. if Delaney, there are employees who are frustrated, there are a bunch of them in Iowa. It was reported um, earlier today, Fox Business, that 60% of the employees at the Tyson uh, Fresh Meats plant in Perry, Iowa, a hog production facility, 60% of them tested positive for coronavirus. Of the 1,250 employees at the Perry uh, location, 730 contracted the virus. Iowa Department of Health reported this. I have no details as of yet on you know, hospitalizations or deaths or recoveries, so to speak. Um, but that is, I think, something we are going to see at a lot of these meatpacking facilities. These numbers of infections are going to be very high. And, you know, as Tyson mentioned in their earnings call on Monday, that could lead to shutdowns. Mm -hmm later on in the year. Yeah, and speaking of shutdowns, Secretary Purdue made a pretty public statement this week saying that packing plants should open, quote, as soon as they are able. He's been going around and touring some processing facilities, and he's also been getting grief on kind of both sides of the aisle. But in a few different letters, one was addressed to state governors. The other was addressed to leaders of meat packers. He says that the guidance coming out from the CDC and the prevention, excuse me, and the Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and ha Health Administration, OSHA, are able to be followed with respect to any current or proposed action that may lead to a reduction in the nation's meat and poultry supplies. So he's essentially trying to bring these two groups of people together. Again, we're doing that written documentation thing of how their operations and health and safety protocol should be based on CDC and OSHA guidance. But he's really putting some pressure, especially on the governors who have been kind of the people who are making these decisions, whether or not like at a state level, they shut them down. So he said they're continuing to partner with those folks. They'll continue to work with state and local officials to ensure that those facilities are implementing best practices. But he said, overall, we need to keep these facilities open and running. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a fact, given the the struggles that we're facing in the farm economy and now the struggles the consumer is facing, we have clearly identified the bottleneck in the meat supply chain and it is mm -hmm. the packers. I mean, yes. These, these massive packing facilities and whether it's... or not coronavirus is impactful enough to cause them to change remains to be seen. Right. But I think we are certainly going, I imagine, and I'm gazing into my crystal ball here, so you know, take it with a grain of salt, but I would think we are going to see a resurgence in in local lockers. I think so too. I absolutely agree. I've actually already had this conversation with a few folks who have been thinking about this, working on ideas to improve this. So I, I think it, the time of the small lockers is probably going to make its comeback. Absolutely. Or even, you know, regional packers, you know, they right. are a, a crucial link in the chain. And, you know, we haven't heard much trouble out of you know, greater Omaha. You know, I, I don't know whether or not coronavirus has broken out if they've shut down the plant. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't heard anything about them. You know, they're not a big four. They're a regional packer that seems to have, and listeners, again, correct us, find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. If you have information I don't have, but I, you know, I assume they're slower than usual, but they're 
you know, getting through it. So Greenville Packers definitely have a place in this new supply chain. Absolutely. I agree. Well, Delaney, I'm going to take us away from meats for a second because we are going to be talking okay. meats. We are going to be getting the meat sweats by the time this week is done <laughs> here on the Agnes Daily Podcast. And I want to take it over to crude oil. We had a bit of good news in the crude oil markets earlier today. Uh, stockpiles, crude oil stockpiles rose less than anticipated. Um, so last, or excuse me, early April, we saw 19 million barrels of crude go into storage. Since then, it has come down. And, uh, but this week, they only, so I should say, the rate of gain has come down. So we added 19 million barrels in early April. This last week, we only added 4.6 million barrels to the crude stockpiles, which is broadly supportive of prices. And I think more importantly for our corn-growing, ethanol-consuming audience, we saw gasoline stockpiles drop for the second week in a row. So an indication that people are getting out there they are driving a little bit more. Now, I think the uh, renewable fuels industry farmers need to really push the Trump administration to put the RFS back into full effect. We need to go back to a 10% blend of ethanol nationwide. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the other thing, too, is it's got to start with, I don't know if this is government intervention or just a campaign, but the, the um, automobile industry has to get behind this, too. Yeah. And, you know, they're they're slow to adopt. They're going to go whatever direction consumers point them in. So, I mean, but it's 10% blend. That's the law. We need to at least be doing that at a minimum. We cannot have any administration exempting massive mm-hmm. oil behemoths from blending ethanol. You know, ExxonMobil, their earnings were reported last week, and they reported a, a loss, which is bad. Right. It was their first loss since 1988. Hmm. Oil can withstand a bit of a drop in profitability. How many quarters and listeners who are investors in ethanol plants know how often ethanol plants are in the red? So, I mean, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm on a soapbox. I'll get off of it. But good news for ethanol. We are seeing people driving more. Hopefully that'll lead to more ethanol demand as the summer ticks along, Delaney. Absolutely. I like your word behemoth, by the way. Absolutely. It's what they are. Yes, I agree. Let's see. I think the only other piece of news I have for today, and uh, I'm questioning it a little bit, but the U.S. Soybean Export Council CEO, Jim Sutter, said that he expects China's going to buy between 30 and 40 million metric tons of U.S. soybeans this calendar year because the Chinese government is trying to make good on their promises under the phase one trade agreement. I really have a hard time believing they are going to buy that many U.S. soybeans, but that's what people are expecting you know and that again ties back into ted's comments on monday if china does surprise us and make this kind of purchase commitment holy buckets does the market get interesting in the world of soybeans yes it does so stay tuned listeners you know we are in a very very frustrating period for i believe all of agriculture right now yes but there are still things happening around the world, and our industry is volatile for a reason. It can certainly shift, and we could see you know, a modicum of profitability return by the end of the year. Absolutely. Well, Delaney, I am all out of news. I just have one, I guess, quick update. Bungie uh, it reported their earnings earlier today, and not surprisingly, they reported a first quarter loss, and they lowered their full year forecast, basically as coronavirus has hit demand for fuel and has completely thrown into uh, uh, 
disarray global supply chains. So it's raised their costs and it has hurt their sales. And so as expected, just like nearly every other company right now, Bungie uh, reported a loss and is lowering their expectations for the year. This coronavirus is frustrating for the world. Um, Can't wait for somebody to find a vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready to get out there. Right. Ready to get out there. We're ready to vaccinate our markets against uh, low prices, Delaney. And today we didn't find that vaccine. No, we didn't. No. Should we talk market prices? Let's do it. All right, folks. Well, as, uh, as I alluded to there, we've got a lot of red in the grains today. Corn was lower, but only slightly, uh, finding some support amidst that crude oil news and also by the rainfall that is moving across the Midwest, helping to support it slightly, uh, still down on the day. However, July was down two and three quarters at 314 and a quarter. December new crop down three cents at 331 and a quarter. In soybeans, the July was off seven cents on the day at 832 and a half. November down seven and a quarter to close at 839 and a quarter. Over in Chicago wheat, the July was off three and a quarter cents at 517 and a half, while the December was down three at 529 even. Looking over at the world of livestock, we do have a bit of excitement in the world of livestock. Live cattle limit up across the board. August, excuse me, June, $3 higher up the daily trading limit, closed at 89.4750. August also limit up at 95.45 close for the day. Feeder cattle also, guess what? Limit up on the day, up the daily 450 trading limit in May, August, and September at least. Uh, the August contract up 450 at 132.75. The September up one, up 450 at 133.95. Lean hogs green, not limit move today, but definitely positive. The June contract was up $1.30 at, at 65.57.50, while the July was up 87.5 to close at 63.80. Dairy has been on a tear this week. The first two days, we saw almost a buck fifty added in the June contract. Today, not surprisingly, we did give some of that back. The May contract was down eleven cents at eleven forty-three, with the June down twelve to close at thirteen fifty-one. Without further ado, let's dive in to the meat industry and the players who make it up, Delaney. Well, today we are joined by Mackenzie Johnston, who is a rancher out there in Nebraska, but she also works with Tri-State Livestock News, and we'll get to that here in just a bit. But Mackenzie, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. So Mackenzie, you have had an interesting few months here leading up to your position with Tri-State Livestock News. Tell us about some of the editorial articles that you've been writing related to the beef industry. Yes. So back at the beginning of March, I wrote an article concerning Brazilian beef imports. And I submitted this article to the Tri-State Livestock News, and they published it as an editorial. And it was accepted fairly well, I'd say, across the cattle industry, but there were a few folks that uh, didn't like it. And due to that article, I lost my part-time position with Nebraska Cattlemen. Uh, They said that the article did not align with their mentality or NCBAs. So that article just highlight, highlighted the implications that Brazilian beef imports will have here on the American cattle producer and the risk of foot and mouth disease within our cattle herd here in the United States. After that, I went on and I wrote an article about Ethan Lane. He had an opportunity to share with, uh, with the masses here in America about the issues going on within our cattle industry on CNBC. And he basically sidestepped all the important questions that were asked of him 
to save face. And that was a squandered opportunity on his part. So I went and wrote about that. And um, I think that's about it when it comes to the editorials I've written as of late that have kind of stirred up the cattle industry. And you are no stranger to the cattle industry. Tell us about your your upbringing and what you do. You mentioned your part-time job with Nebraska Cattlemen, but full-time, you're in the industry. You bet. Full-time, I ranch with my folks here in central Nebraska. Uh, I grew up on a ranch. I'm a fifth-generation rancher. We have a commercial Red Angus cow-calf herd here uh, right in the heart of the Sandhills. And Mackenzie, it's it's very obvious in talking to you that you're very passionate about the beef industry and, and things that have been maybe going poorly as of the last year. But really, I think the event that kickstarted this for a lot of folks was the the Tyson fire that happened there in, in Kansas. When you look at the chain of events that have happened from that now to COVID-19, as a beef producer, what does that do to your operation? What does that mean to you guys as farmers and knowing that perhaps there has been some collusion going on behind closed doors? It's incredibly disappointing and it's very worrisome. The Holcomb, the Holcomb fire brought out a lot of red flags. Um, there's a lot that came out of that situation that just didn't add up. And then on top of it, we were promised an investigation by the USDA into that fire and nothing ever came of that. And, uh, that was, that was a significant event, uh, a significant event, but it wasn't enough to make the markets fall out of bed like they did. And it totally killed the CME, uh, hurt a lot of folks that were selling cattle right around that time. And then, Fast forward to uh, to when COVID-19 started having an effect here on the cattle industry and agriculture as a whole, things have really just fallen to pieces. And um, yes, COVID-19, it is, a, it is a terrible thing that is going on within our country, but the, the implicate, how the cattle industry, how the cattle markets have reacted, it's been blown way out of proportion. The cattle market should have not decline as quickly or as much as they have so to see that happen and have no real reasoning behind it uh, we have boxed beef at an all-time record I believe it went over $400 today and then we have cattle selling for record lows. Uh, I understand supply and demand but there's something going on within our processing sector that is throwing everything out of whack well, and Mackenzie, isn't it possible that what's going on in the processing sector is just a lack of competition amongst processors? With Big Four processing eighty percent of the beef, they're just there. There just yeah. isn't any competition. Yeah, there is no competition. There is no price discovery. I mean, out here in my neck of the woods, you most people, a lot of people, take their cattle to a sale barn, and there's some price discovery. I mean, you have a few people bidding on these cattle. Then these cattle, they go to a feeder. And these feeders are lucky to get one, one, uh, one buyer from a packing, from a processing facility to pull in their yard and get a bid on those cattle. Most of the time, they are offered a price and they have to take it. They are essentially told what they have to take for these cattle. So there's no more price discovery. Uh, we need to implement more negotiated cash trade. Uh, we have to get more competition. We have let our processing sector become consolidated through the years. And as you said, 80% of the processing of our meat 
is within four four companies. There lies the problem. So Mackenzie, fast forwarding to current day, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you are with Tri-State Livestock News now, hopefully getting to share all of this that you're passionate about. But with that role, are you just writing articles? Are you writing editorials? Tell us a little bit more about that. So with this position with the Tri-State Livestock News, um, I am interviewing industry leaders and discussing current issues within our cattle markets, within the cattle industry, and solutions that need to be put in place in order to achieve fair cattle markets. So I interview these folks either in person or through a Zoom interview, and then we publish the interview, and then I also publish a blog to go along with the interview. And essentially what we're doing is we're just trying to get the stories out there about what's truly going on within our cattle markets and the solutions that need to be put in place in order to keep our cattle industry together. Now, for our listeners who are outside the tri-state area, how can they log in? How can they get access to uh, some of the stuff you've been writing about and reporting on? Right. So I would send them to our website, www.fair-cattle-markets.com. We post all of our stories, all of our interviews there. Or if you're not already doing so, follow the Tri-State Livestock News on Facebook. Everything is also posted on there. Mackenzie, as you look at some of the people you're interviewing, the the stories you're working on, what's jumping out at you right now? Is it all COVID-19 and packer margins? Or are there other things on your horizon that you're working on long term? No, basically that's it. It's all about um, the extreme packer margins, the consolidation, the corruption, the need for increased negotiated cash trade the need for mandatory country of origin labeling to come back into the picture. Um, basically just the desperate need for something to change within our cattle industry in, in order to keep the independent producer alive. Now, one of the things when we talk about the fair cattle markets uh, movement and kind of the uh, make our cattle uh, markets great again, that was, uh, you know, we had the big uh, rally earlier in the year. You know, one of the main backers of that is the Organization for Competitive Markets. And OCM has taken a lot of positions that uh, that a lot of farmers or rural Americans don't care for. How has your been, experience been working with them in regards to uh, the cattle industry in particular? I, I do not have a lot of experience with the OCM. I know they have very strong opinions on a lot of the issues within our cattle industry. However, I do not follow them very closely. I do, I try to follow um, the U.S. Cattlemen's Association. I, I feel strongly about them. And then also RCAF, they do a phenomenal job of representing the independent producer. Well, Mackenzie, one more time before we let you go, remind us again how we can find some of the articles that you've written. Yeah, um, head on over to www.fair-cattle-markets.com. They'll be posted there or follow Tri-State Livestock News on Facebook, or you can also follow me on Facebook under Mackenzie Johnston. Fantastic. Well, Mackenzie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.
Well, again, a big thank you there to Mackenzie. Interesting stuff. Check out what she's writing, what she's working on. I'm glad we have folks like her to advocate for the producer. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where there is a lot of competing information. There is a lot of competing ideals when we talk, well, any industry, but meats in particular, because it comes back to our roots. It comes back to, you know, family, cow-calf ranchers, you know, cow-calf producers in, in the Corn Belt states around the country. And it, it, there's just something inherently, uh, it tugs at your heart, I guess is right. what I'm trying to say. Delaney. Exactly. Yeah. Good way to put it. Yeah. So listeners, uh, you know, get active. If, if you've got feelings about this industry, now's a great time to speak your piece. We got folks listening right now to me. And if you want to learn on other aspects of agriculture, so when you speak your piece, people will take you seriously. A great place to do that is the Ag News Daily podcast. Check out our past episodes on our website at agnewsdaily.com and um, uh, visit us on social media. I mentioned earlier, we want to hear from you. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.